What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. We are diving into a new sermon series today on atonement, and I'm certain more than one of you is asking right now, atonement, uh, what does that word mean again? And it's not a word we use very much in the U.S. Uh, today we might think of something like reparations or making amends, but I like to go back to its roots. The word originally came from the phrase at one, at one mint, and means we are in harmony. We can be at one with our friends and neighbors, with our family, and those are all good and important. But in Christianity, we often wrestle with the idea of how we humans, in all our sin and brokenness, could ever be at one with God. How is that possible? Why would God ever choose to love us filthy, stinking, sinful humans that find new and terrifying ways to humiliate and destroy one another? Last week, Kara Song preached for us, and she shared a story that really stuck with me. It conjured smells I really didn't want to think about. She said how she was on a camping retreat, and they had a big bonfire, but the person in charge had put all their trash in the middle of the fire. The group thought they were going to have a beautiful, delightful campfire with testimony and s'mores, but instead, when they lit the fire, it smelled so bad, they had to retreat inside and hide from the smell of burning trash. That, I think, is a fitting analogy for what our sin must be like to God. How can the burning, stinking trash of our lives ever be okay with God? How can God smell that and not immediately reject us? It would be right for God to reject us. It's the right thing to do, but that's not what God does. Instead, thousands of years ago, religious people knew there had to be a way to get right with God. And in Judaism, they practiced the Day of Atonement, where they could become at one with God. We're going to hear from Karen now. She's going to read for us from Leviticus 16, 23 through 34. This is a description of the Day of Atonement. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Aaron shall enter the tent of meeting, and shall take off the linen vestments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place, and put on his vestments. Then he shall come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, making atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall turn into smoke on the altar. The one who sets the goat free for Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards may come into the camp. The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be consumed in fire. The one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards may come into the camp. This shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall deny yourselves. You shall do no work, neither the citizen nor the alien who resides among you. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you, to cleanse you from all your sins. You shall be clean before the Lord. 
It is a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall deny yourselves. It is a statute forever. The priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the linen vestments, the holy vestments. He shall make atonement for the sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you, to make atonement for the people of Israel once in the year for all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord had commanded him. And from John twenty-one fifteen through 17, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And in verse 19 after this, he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Help us to find harmony and peace with you, Lord, despite all that may be wrong in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Years ago, I was talking to a bunch of teenagers about sin, and I asked them about it. I said, who among us has not sinned? And usually when you ask a question like that to teenagers, they know what's coming and nobody dares to raise their hand. They don't want to be called out for the wrong things that they do. But one little girl named Emily raised her hand. I couldn't believe it. I asked her, you've never sinned? You've never disobeyed your mom? And she said, no. Have you ever lied to someone? No. Stolen something? No. Said a mean thing? No. Now those are all sins of commission. They are sins we actively commit, a wrong action we take. So I got smart. I started asking about sins of omission, a sin by not doing active good when we could. I asked her, have you ever not helped someone that was in need? Ever ignored someone because they were different from you? And she said, no and no. Now, because I knew this person, I was certain she had sin in one way or another. But I learned something that day. Some people don't think they've ever done anything wrong. Now, that's not true for most of us, right? Most of us probably think we've sinned somehow, even if we can't name it. But deep down, we usually think our sin really isn't all that bad as our enemies, that God probably likes us and prefers us to them. We think even just going to church or watching online, that is evidence of our moral superiority to others. Now, it didn't used to be like that. A few hundred years ago in the United States, we had a religious revival sweep across the land, and people were so afraid that they had offended God in some way or, or done something without knowing it that they pleaded for mercy. There would be a bench up front in church called the mourner's bench where people who were not saved could 
be close to the preacher who told them how angry God was, how insufferable their sin was. And as they mourned and wept, they were told how they could repent and be freed from their sins through prayer. This process was made famous by Jonathan Edwards, who preached a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Today we might refer to this as fire and brimstone preaching. We are all going to hell if we don't say a prayer of repentance and change our lives. Again, many of us probably don't think like this today. Instead, we think in what are called relativistic terms. Uh, There's a, a TV show from a few years ago that I really enjoyed called The Good Place. The premise is that every character has died and gone to heaven, but all is not right. At one point, one of the characters played by Ted Danson asks why no one gets to heaven anymore. And the answer goes something like this. Every action we take earns or loses points. If at the end of our lives we have earned more points than we've lost, then we go to the good place, to heaven. But these days we are always losing points because our complex global economy, we do things that are hidden by a bunch of actions taken behind the scenes. So it makes it hard to do anything good. Now that suggests some interesting ideas about right and wrong, but the premise itself is all rotten. We do not earn points to get to heaven. We cannot earn our way to heaven. We can't even be sure what we are doing is even the right thing most of the time. And the prophet Isaiah says, Our righteous acts are like a filthy rag to God. And the apostle Paul says, When we judge others, we condemn ourselves because we do the very same things. We don't even see our own hypocrisy. We simply cannot do it. We cannot live life in a way that actually pleases and honors God. It seems we are stuck as burning trash that God hates. But the ancient church, they knew that couldn't be the case. God couldn't leave us as hopeless, meaningless creatures doomed to hell. There had to be a way to get right with God. That was the point of the Day of Atonement. You might know the Jewish term Yom Kippur, that's the Hebrew name for the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the tabernacle, which was this special tent set up to meet with God. Today we might think of a a temple or a church, but it would be more like the most holy and sacred church you can think of, like a, a basilica or the Vatican. And the tabernacle was divided into two parts. The front half had bread, candles, and incense. And then uh, the priest would make sure that there was the fresh bread daily presented to God. The candles were always burning day and night. And the incense gave a perpetually sweet smell to God. Perhaps in some ways that was meant to cover over the stench of the sin of the people. But past the holy place, you could go through a curtain to the holy of holies. Here only the high priest could go and he could only enter one time, once a year, on the Day of Atonement. He would take off his beautiful, ornate vest that usually made him look more like a king than a priest, and he'd have to put on a very simple, plain, white linen frock. It was so ordinary, it was less than what even the typical priest would wear. It was a sign that even the high priest, essentially the most holy person in the land, was not right before God. Even the high priest must submit himself in humility to the awesome 
holiness of God. He would create a cloud of smoke from the incense before he could go into the Holy of Holies. And only after there was this thick fog would he enter. Then he'd spread the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement for the people. The scripture today said atonement was for him, for the people, and even for the tent of meeting from the, for the altar to the sanctuary. Everything must be atoned for because everything must be in harmony with God. One part of the ceremony involved two goats. One was sacrificed on behalf of the people, but the other one was called Azazel. It was the scapegoat. People would symbolically put their sins on the goat and would, it would be forced out of the city, taking the sins of the people right with them, right? But people were so scared that the goat might wander back into the city with their sin that even though the Bible said that the goat was to be free in the wilderness... They would back the goat up to the edge of a cliff and make it fall so that it would die. Jewish tradition once said that a person's coming year would be written in God's book. So in the week leading up to the Day of Atonement, they would try to change what was written by God by changing their behavior and seeking forgiveness. At the end, and I quote, one hopes that they have been forgiven by God. Hopefully it worked. Hopefully your next year is a good one because you convinced God with a week of repentance. But who just didn't work? So that's where Jesus comes in. If we can't make ourselves right, and it is unclear whether our behavior has any effect on God's forgiveness, then what can make us at one with God? The answer is only God's Son, only Jesus. Only the perfect and final sacrifice can bring harmony between people and God. We actually see this in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, describes how just as Jesus dies, darkness descends across the land. There is a terrible noise as the earth quakes and light fails. And as it seems as though all hope is lost, the veil in the temple is ripped in half. What does that mean? That means the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the tent of meeting is now gone. That means this sacred space that could only be visited once a year to maybe make us right with God is no longer inaccessible. Now it's open. Now we can meet God. Some people even believe this tearing of the veil means that God has left the temple. If God isn't in the temple or the tent of being, where is he? He's here. He's with you and me. Not our actions that make us righteous. It's God alone that does it. God chooses to love us instead of reject us. All that God asks for is to join him in the journey of a relationship with him. Period. That's it. That's what makes us at one with God. Some of you know my boss, Gina Kim. She oversees about 69 Methodist churches, and she recently announced that she would be retiring from pastoral ministry. If we can, we'll have a big party for her when she does retire. But she told me this past week about how she first came into ministry. It started with a missions trip to South America. Gina had been doing everything right from the outside. She was 
deeply devoted to raising a family, which of course included taking them to church. She even taught as a Sunday school teacher and worked with the youth group. If you had seen her then, you would have said she's doing everything right. She is in harmony with people and with God. But then she went on that mission trip. She said the first problem was that while it was summer here in the United States, down in South America, it was winter. She didn't know that and didn't have clothing that was warm enough to defend against the biting cold. Not only that, the food was terrible. <laughs> the isolated rural village could hardly give them enough to satisfy her, and to top it off, it tasted awful. Add to this the fact that any communication with the people of that community required two interpreters, one to translate to Spanish and another to translate into the local dialect, and uh, you had yourself a very cold, miserable woman. Gina said she was so miserable that she was mean. She didn't want to talk to anyone. She didn't want to do anything. She just wanted to go back home. Being stripped of her usual routines and the comforts of American life had laid her heart bare. She was not a happy person. She was not the model of Christianity she thought she was. Her heart was a mess. She felt terrible about it, but what could she do? She was not the person she thought she was. When she came home, she was still miserable, and she spent her days unsure of herself and her evenings in prayer with God. Finally, one day in prayer, she says she heard the voice of God. Whether it was audible or not, she could not say, but she was sure God spoke to her heart as he asked, Do you love me? You'll recall these are the same words Jesus spoke to Peter. Do you love me? And Peter said, yes, each time. And Jesus gave a very clear command to him, feed my sheep and follow me. And Gina knew in an instant her answer. Yes, she loves the Lord. And yes, she would care for the people of God and follow Jesus. She would do it with everything inside of her, no matter the consequences. And that... That decision right there is what makes her right with God. It doesn't matter what sins she may have committed before or what sins she may commit in the future. It doesn't matter how she might fail or what struggles she might come up against. It doesn't even matter how she would later succeed and become a leader among pastors. What matters is that she is committed to Jesus come what may. Peter failed too, you know. He denied Jesus right before the crucifixion. Peter must have felt sick to his stomach as Jesus was dying. And then at the resurrection, he must have felt so happy, but also so miserable. What would he ever say to Jesus? How could he make it right? And the answer is, he can't. He cannot make it right. What's done is done. What, what, but what, can he do, what he can do is love Jesus. What he can do is love the people God loves. What he can do is follow the Lord no matter what happens. 
I wonder if you would choose that kind of life. Not one based on what you do wrong or right, but based on a commitment to Jesus. Will you choose God no matter what? Even if the kids are sick and the house is a mess, even if you lose your job and the car breaks down, even in sickness and death, even in success and wealth, will you follow Jesus? If you do, you will know peace. You will know atonement. Because you are not made right with God by what you do. You are made right with God because you choose to follow him this day. Turn away from sin, yes. Turn away from the things the world loves, yes. But ultimately, this is not about sin. The day of atonement is about when you experience atonement. It's when you say yes to God. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.